I was thinking about uh, a dear friend of ours who teaches the Bible. He's quite well known. He's on staff of a large church in California. But when he taught the passage we're studying to his Sunday school class of about three or four hundred, he just mispronounced that word when the sheets came down out of heaven and, yeah, said the word we don't usually say. And that set the class off to hysteria for the rest of the time. It was a no-go. So I'm going to be very careful how I speak. <clears throat> I have that in my mind. I, anyways, I, a little saying. <laughs> Some minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed up, and permanently set. And I'm thankful that that is not the case in the life of, the, of Peter and what the Lord was doing in his life and the impact it has on all of us sitting here in this room. We've been studying the history of the birth of the church as well as the growth. And the barrier between the Jews and Samaritans had been broken with Philip, Peter, and John sharing the gospel. We saw that and many believed. But an even greater barrier for the Jewish thinking would be that Gentiles would be included. This next passage we're looking at is critical to the future of the church and, as I said, by application to all of us. I want to remind you of what Ephesians chapter 2 says about Gentiles, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. For now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what we're studying today is how that all came to be. If the barrier that existed between Jews and Gentiles had not been broken down, Christianity would have just been another sect of Judaism. So we have seen the salvation of a youth Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, but there are greater walls that exist and must come down. Like Peter, I suspect none of us likes to be confronted regarding the fact that we may have racial prejudice or the fact that we need to change because we are wrong. That doesn't usually come very easy. Yeah, I know, shocking. It doesn't come easy for anyone. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, I can't really relate to that. I have no prejudice. But it truly rears its ugly head when we make critical, negative judgments about people based on their skin color, the language you hear them speaking, the style of clothing that they're wearing, the size of their body, the job they may or may not have, the education or money they may or may not have, the body full of tattoos and body piercings they may or may not have. You know you're guilty. You know you've been in public and you see somebody and you instantly make a judgment about yes. them just because you saw them. Yes. You know nothing. How dare we do that? Anyways, I suspect I mentioned some people that you have possibly passed judgment on before. And you know what? It's sin. It's wicked. You need to repent. And then there's that matter of you need to change. That's tough. If you were brought up to believe certain foods and drinks and social behavior are absolutely wrong, it is not easy to work through the change that maybe you were wrong or your parents were wrong and these were personal preferences, not biblical absolutes. Well, magnify that a thousandfold for the Jewish mindset, where their whole religious life was every aspect of their home and social life and behavior. But there's so much more at stake. 
when we reject or scorn people or exclude them in our own hearts as not being worthy to work, uh, reach out to. Such was the case for the first church that was made up of all Jewish people, but God was about to change all of that. I read about Mahatma Gandhi, who tells of a time in his autobiography that he was in England and he had read through the Gospels and he was deeply touched by what he read. And so he considered whether or not he should become a Christian. After all, it seemed to offer a solution to the caste system, which still so wickedly divides the people of India. So one Sunday, he attended a church and planned to ask the minister questions about salvation and doctrines and teachings from the Bible. But when he entered the church, the ushers refused to give him a seat and told him to go elsewhere to worship with his own people. And he left and he never came back. He concluded, this is his quote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Wow. What harm do we bring to the name of Christ and blaspheme his name, really, when we have such sinful, prejudiced attitudes? So this lengthy section dedicated to the salvation of Cornelius uh, was to open the minds and hearts of the early believers of the church to accept the truth that Gentiles were a part of of the church. As Ephesians 2.14 goes on to say, Christ made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We can see the amazing sequence of events that leads to the salvation of Cornelius and the work God is going to do uh, to finish what Christ had done to present it to all of the world. So let's look at the conversion of Cornelius. We're obviously not going to read all of these verses. Cornelius has a vision from God in the first eight verses, and we see in our study that God is preparing the heart of one man who needs the Lord and the heart of the other man who needs to bring the message of the Lord to him. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So here was a Roman soldier a successful man in charge of a hundred men stationed in Caesarea, which is a beautiful place, which I'm going to get to be at next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, he would have proven to been someone very reliable and very strong and very responsible. So he grew up in a culture that would have worshipped Roman gods. So obviously at some point for him, he realized there was just no validity to the culture around him and the beliefs that were embraced. And at some point he was exposed to Judaism and he came to believe that theirs is the one true God. And because of his belief, he gave offerings to benefit the Jewish people. So here was a man whose heart responded to the light of the evidence about God all around him. And this man, uh, he longed to know more about the true God. What a great reminder as he looked at creation and his heart was being tender towards the Lord. Uh, that God is at work in a person's heart, and if they desire to know the truth, he will make sure he sends more light for them to know the truth. He was not a saved man, though he prayed faithfully and gave alms. There are many people today who are so similar to Cornelius. They pray, they believe their prayers are being heard to the one true God, and yet they don't know him personally. So we know he wasn't a true proselyte of Judaism because he hadn't been circumcised, but he was a God-fearing man. 
Cornelius was praying, as was the custom of the Jewish people, three o'clock in the afternoon, when God sent an angel to speak to him and give him specific instructions. And being much alarmed, obviously, at the sight of this angel, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter, staying with a tanner named Simon, who is at the house by the sea. So the angel could have been the one to tell Cornelius, good news, let me fill you in, Jesus is the Messiah. And he didn't share the gospel with him, though, because that has been a command by God for people to tell people. At the end of uh, the tribulation, there will be an angel pronouncing the truth of the gospel around the world. But in the meantime, it is people telling people. God was orchestrating Peter to be the one to open the door and bringing salvation to Cornelius and the Gentile world. I love how Cornelius promptly dispatched his men to go to Peter. No questions, just obey. And of course, he had no idea that the man he's sending for on his own would have never, ever, ever come. But he was being prepared by God and would soon be blown away by what God was going to reveal. So now Peter has the vision, 33 miles south of Caesarea uh, in Joppa near modern-day Tel Aviv. This transpires as the me uh, messenger approaches the town. Uh, Peter was waiting for lunch. He's hungry and it's being prepared. So he's up on the flat roof of Simon praying and his stomach's growling <laughs> as well. And God gives him a vision related to food. Uh, and he said, Peter has his vision, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, <laughs> lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth, birds of the air, and a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. God had commanded his people Israel to be very separate and distinct in what they ate, what they were forbidden to eat, what they could eat. That was all part of God's way of keeping them separate from the idolatrous people that were around them, that they couldn't sit down and have a meal together as friendly neighbors. Of course, God's desire was that Israel would remain faithful to him and not follow the false pagan gods around them, but that wasn't to be. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. That was the answer to Peter's uh, amazing shock about this vision. You know what? It's a new day. God is calling out a people for his name. Peter resisted the message. Uh, he couldn't imagine that it would be okay. Instead of keeping separate, God was now going to bring Jews and Gentiles together to make up this new body, the church. This was repeated, the vision, three times, and Peter was greatly perplexed as to what he had seen. I kept thinking about Peter three, three times he rejected or acted like he didn't know the Lord. Three times Jesus said, will you feed my sheep? And three times here, get it, Peter, it's okay now. <laughs> so just then there's a knock at the gate and the men sent by Cornelius are asking if Simon, also called Peter, was there. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that there were three men looking for him and Peter was to get up and accompany them without misgivings for I have sent them myself. 
Peter obeyed what the Lord told him, and he invited these three Gentile men in. Could you imagine the neighbors? I mean, it was bad enough having a tanner who works with dead animals, so he's always unclean, live in your neighborhood. And now these Gentiles have been invited in. Must have been shocking. The men explained that Cornelius had sent them a righteous, God-fearing man, directed by an angel. So I love that both Cornelius and Peter obeyed what God said, even if they didn't understand, <laughs> even if it didn't make sense. It was likely that these visitors had their very first kosher meal, and it's very likely that Peter, this is the last time he had only a kosher meal. <laughs> so God was doing a work in Peter, even in these brief first hours, that he showed these men hospitality. I wish I could have been there, heard the conversation at that meal table. <laughs> the following day, they left uh, for, ja uh, for Caesarea, Peter, and he took along six Jewish believers from the church in Joppa. And as Peter gets to the home of Cornelius, we see, can you imagine seven Orthodox men are walking up to this man's home? And it's filled with Gentiles. Family, friends, excited, God's sending a man, he's coming to tell us things, and they're all there ready to hear about a great work God is about to do. So Peter arrives, and Cornelius falls at his feet when he sees him. And immediately Peter told him, get up, he's just a man like him. There is no place in the Christian faith ever for worship of a man or a woman or anyone other than the Lord Jesus. He is the only one worthy of worship. Peter understood that. Once Peter enters the home filled with Gentiles, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objections when I was sent for, so I asked for what reason you have sent for me. In a very short period of time, think about it, God had taught Peter, you know what, Gentiles are part of the plan. They're not unclean. The, the food's unclean and eating with people who eat that food was unclean and it's a total change. Cornelius explains to him that an angel had appeared to him saying that his prayers had been heard and alms had been remembered by God and because of that, he was to dispatch men to Joppa and bring Peter back. So, he's here with all his friends and family, waiting for the message that the Lord would have Peter bring to them. So the Spirit leaves Peter to give a simple presentation of the Gospel. This is in contrast to his earlier sermons where we've studied where he really ripped apart the Jewish leaders for their part in the murder of Jesus. But a light's been turned on in Peter's heart. Very quickly, I might add, verse 34, I, must certainly, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does, not, does what is right is welcome to him. So the point is, God is not a respecter of people. This is all new to Peter, and he admits he is only beginning to understand what God is doing. He's not saying that God accepts everyone everywhere because they do sincere good deeds. The whole reason Peter has been brought here is because Cornelius is not saved. He cannot be saved without the gospel message being brought to him. Yet there was a work being done to draw sinners to salvation and that was not possible without the gospel being presented to them. So God revealed to Peter that 
he was wrong in how he viewed Gentiles. And Peter submitted, okay, I'm wrong. I need to change. I wonder if that's your attitude or that's your response when you learn from Scripture that you are wrong. Scripture has to be our authority, not our background, not the way we were raised, not our traditions, because this is what I was always told. Scripture has to be our authority. <clears throat> and so Peter goes on to give the gospel, a very simple explanation of the person and work of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, the fact that he rose from the dead, the prophets spoke of this man who is the Messiah, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And you know, while Peter's giving this gospel presentation, <clears throat> and they're all listening, obviously everyone believed. I mean, because suddenly, while he's still speaking, verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So they're there, uh-huh, we believe. <laughs> Much to the shock of all of the Jewish believers present, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles just like it had been, he had been with them on the day of Pentecost. They were speaking in other languages, giving praise to God. This was a moment we all need to praise God for. Gentiles would be saved and receive the same spirit, and the church would be not made up of Jewish people alone, but Jew and Gentile. The spirit granted these Gentiles the ability to speak in other languages. It was visible proof to Peter and the other Jewish believers that God was doing the same work in pagan Gentiles who would be saved. So the Gentile believers uh, who come to faith are baptized by water. Uh, this is what follows someone who trusts Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Uh, they were indwelt by the Spirit, and their baptism was a step of obedience after they believed to pu publicly confess Jesus. Baptism is not a part of how one is saved, nor how one receives the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience to the command of Jesus, to publicly get up and declare your faith in him. I can't help but think that Peter must be thinking about, wow, when they get word of this, back home. And I, I, you know, no texting, no phone calls, but man, word travels fast. You know, he just stayed a little bit longer and whoosh, they all knew about it already. He was grateful, no doubt, that other Jewish believers were there with him and saw this too. It wasn't just his own scene, that God was doing the same exact work in Gentiles as he had done in his chosen people. Before we go to the next chapter, I just want us to think about what we can learn from what we've just seen in this study. If God were to drop down a sheet from heaven, from the sky, and reveal your heart, what things are on there that you think are, well, I can love these people, but those people, I don't think so. What prejudice have you maybe justified in your own heart and mind? There, are, there is no one that we are ever to look down on or simply write off as unimportant or irrelevant or too wicked, no matter their sexual sin and sexual lifestyle preference or the false religion they're steeped in, the color of their skin or the culture, we are to have God's heart and his heart is a love for each one. For anyone to think that they are better than someone else is such a complete and utter failure to see your own wicked depravity before a holy God. No one deserves forgiveness. You don't. I don't. So guard your heart against this kind of sin 
have a humble heart. Honestly, ask the Lord <laughs> to reveal your own heart to yourself. It is amazingly wicked. And those thoughts and those words that you have come to your mind just because you see somebody or whatever, it is wicked. It, <laughs> it's not the way of our Lord. Also, eating a certain way does not make a person more right with God than someone who doesn't eat that same way. Jesus, after all, said it's not what we eat, what comes in our mouth, it's what comes out of our mouth that reveals the wickedness of our own heart. And yet so many people become self-righteous in their attitude because of the certain way that they eat. That, there's a danger with that. And certainly there are healthy choices and there are unhealthy choices when we eat. And we certainly reap the benefits of how and what we eat. But beware of the legalism that tries to put people back into a bondage when it comes to what you can and cannot eat. Another thing, beware of making traditions or social customs or your background and how you were raised as your authority above scripture. If it's not based in evident in scripture, then it was your parents' opinion and their parents' opinion and so on and so on. Make sure what you believe is based on scripture. Don't make your preferences to be higher than scripture. God has to be our ultimate authority and his word. We had a fellowship in the body of Christ with people, all kinds of people, people who aren't like us. And let's face it, ladies, there are all kinds in the body of Christ, right? I mean, you just can be amazed. But we should never avoid being with people because they're not like the people we like to be with. If they're our brother and sisters in Christ, we're one. We're family. So, Peter reports back to the church in Jerusalem, and the accusation's already gone out. Information, I got, they got their own pipeline that is moving fast uh, back in this era. I know somebody's on a horse or a donkey. <laughs> Quickly getting back. Uh, so the accusation is, you went to the home of an eight, you ate with uncircumcised men. Becoming a believer in Jesus as Messiah was one thing. To have an Ethiopian eunuch go back to Ethiopia and believe, that was, that was something else, okay. But to have, uh, and then to have a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer, become a believer, okay. But total pagan, Roman, godless people, that was quite another. But Peter, you know what, he didn't engage in an argument with them or come across like, oh, you're not as enlightened as me, see, I know how it's really working. No, he <laughs> simply recounted the events that led him to be in this home with this Gentile and to be there and how they had believed what he taught about the gospel and the Holy Spirit had indwelt them. Peter recalls the words of the Lord Jesus, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter concludes, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift, gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And the accusers settled down. And I love that they responded so amazing because they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Wow, what a response by the fellow believers there. Amazing. When presented with the truth of what God was doing, everyone seemed to go, oh, okay. There are a whole lot of people in churches today who would never, ever respond that way. They would say, this has never been done. This cannot be right. 
I love these early believers and their response. So, the groundwork's laid for the Gentile church to be founded. Uh, I read it's approximately seven to ten years post the day of Pentecost. And for those years, this infant church has been hearing the word of God taught and by the apostles. They've been growing, they've been maturing, all in preparation for the wall of division between Jew and Gentile to come tumbling down. And the Great Commission is now going to be fulfilled as they go to the remotest parts of the earth. And the Church of Antioch is born in verses 19 through 30. For the first time, a church is going to be actively involved in evangelizing Gentiles. Verse 19 almost picks up where 8-4 left off. After Stephen was murdered, the church experienced persecution. People took off running for their lives. And where, where they went and settled, they spoke of Jesus. Of course, they were Jews, and they spoke to other Jews about Jesus as they made their way uh, up the coast. <clears throat> People went to Lydda, Joppa, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. So there were a group of Jewish believers in verse 20 that were Greek-speaking from Cyprus who came to Antioch and they began speaking to the other Greek-speaking people who were Gentiles, preaching Jesus to them. And the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now Antioch was a totally pagan, godless city. These Gentiles were not like Cornelius, God-fearer, interested in Judaism. Antioch was located in Syria. <clears throat> it would have had a mixture of Greeks and Romans and Arabs all living there. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a business city with a lot of money flowing through it on its way up to Rome. They thought themselves to be very tolerant people because they had such a diverse population there. It was a morally filthy, corrupt city. They even had an outdoor brothel in the Grove of Apollo. Yet in this large, corrupt city, a church is born. The Lord Jesus used the preaching of the gospel to turn people from their sins to faith in the one true God. God had prepared the hearts of the people in this pagan city, and faithful followers of Jesus came and gave them the message. So, the Jerusalem church gets wind of this now. So they want to send uh, an investigation team out there to see what's going on, and who better than Barnabas? We met Barnabas in chapter 4, where he sold all his property, gave to the needs of the church. He also helped uh, the church accept Paul. His name means son of encouragement. And in verse 24, it describes him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Like some of the founders of the new church, Barnabas was from Cyprus. So when he came, he certainly wouldn't have been viewed as an outsider. When he arrived and saw the grace of God at work, you know what he did? He rejoiced. He didn't, go, he, he didn't have a negative attitude about these people, Gentiles, and immediately he began to encourage all of them, remain true to the Lord. There were so many coming to faith in Jesus that Barnabas had to get help, so he left for Tarsus, trying to find Saul, who he had lost track of, it's been years. He finds him, brings him back to Antioch, and together they team, teach, and help this church grow in godliness. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, this was not a compliment coming from the community who called them this. It was a term of derision, but soon it became the declaration of those who would end up dying for their faith. So the generosity of these believers is seen in 27 through 30. 
prophets came down, they were told there's going to be a terrible famine. It happened just as it was stated by, during the time of Claudius. And the response was, in verse 29 and 30, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send for the relief of their brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Here we see new Gentile believers giving sacrificially to meet the needs of Jewish brothers and sisters they've never met and people they probably didn't have a good attitude about initially either. These Gentiles, formerly known as Greeks or Romans or Arabs or whatever, are now called Christians. That's their identity. And they cared about other Jewish Christians they'd never met. It was a bond between these two churches. These once pagan Gentiles were characterized now by personal sacrifice for people they didn't even know. When people embrace the gospel message of Jesus, they are transformed from the inside out. It changes everything about how you think, how you look at people, how you spend your money. It's not all about me. What about how can I help someone else? And racial and cultural distinctions become unimportant. What matters is being a part of the family of God. They were taught well as new believers, and they leave a great example uh, as they showed their love from a changed heart. The gift of money was brought back to Jerusalem, given to the elders there. This is the first mention of elders, so now they've been established in Jerusalem. That is how the Lord uh, leads and rules the church here on earth. How blessed was this church in Antioch to have Paul as a pastor, and this would be the sending church to send him on all his missionary journeys we will be studying. So, how do we apply this? I've already mentioned a few things, but a great reminder, God's the one who prepares the hearts of people to hear the gospel. We're only the ones to bring, we're commanded to tell. We can't change anybody's heart. But look at God, what he does to prepare a heart. And we dare not have any prejudice toward any people group, any. If we know Christ, we are to be his witnesses to all. There is no one who is beneath, below, irrelevant, or out of the reach of the gospel. Every person needs to hear. And when presented with the truth of scripture, you know what, ladies, we need to be willing and ready to admit if we're wrong because we haven't understood the scriptures accurately. Our upbringing and our personal preferences cannot be more important than scripture's authority in our life. And we are to all be a witness. Like I said, we, we can't say what Peter could say that we saw in person, the resurrected Christ. But you know what? We see him through the word of God with the eyes of faith. We know what it's like to have peace, to have our sins forgiven, to not have a fear of death, to have hope. We can witness to this. We can tell anybody who will listen, this is true. The Great Commission started to be fulfilled and it needs to be continuing in our lifetime today. So praise God, the message of forgiveness and hopes available to everyone. This is a history of how the, the gospel came to yours, forefathers and mine. So we need to have the same priorities as the church of Antioch, spend time in the word of God, being taught truth. Their lives were transformed and the evidence was seen in their behavior and how they loved one another. I wonder what people who live with you or around you or know you characterize you by, Christian, self-sacrificing, loving, self-absorbed, unkind. I don't know, you have to answer what you think, but the priority in our life needs to be that we are known as Christians who love Christ and reflect him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for allowing us to see 
how we got to be people who would grow up hearing the truth. I thank you for including this in your word. I pray that we would obey. God, I pray for any here who don't really know you. Maybe they're like Cornelius. They fear God. They pray. But they don't have a relationship with you. Like Cornelius, they need to trust the gospel message of their own sinfulness and Jesus' death for forgiveness of sins. I pray you'll work in any lady's heart who doesn't know for sure that she is your child. And Lord, for all here who profess to know you, God, I pray that you would put your heavy hand of conviction in the sin in our own lives, of our lovelessness, of our prejudice, based on numerous reasons. Lord, I pray that you would show us our sin, that we would truly repent and love the world and see people through your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.